Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Trout Talk. Got another exciting guest on for this episode. We've got Josh Almond, who lives in West Yellowstone, Montana. Super excited to hear his perspective because he's lived and fished in a lot of different places, starting out in Michigan and then to North Carolina, Florida, before ending up guiding in Alaska, and now finally in Montana. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. I feel like we should just start chronologically. Might as well start from the beginning. You started fishing in Michigan. Just kind of take us from there so we have some some background. Yeah, so I grew up just outside of Grand Rapids, and my grandfather was the big fisherman in the family, and I spent pretty much every weekend up at his place in northern Michigan, and uh, he had me start tying flies when I was probably around four years old, and I had to wait until I was eight before I got to get casting lessons from him <laughs> with the fly rod, and uh, him and a couple of his buddies would do the hex hatch every summer and that was their big fly fishing trip that for years I wasn't able to join uh, so that was a, a big moment was was getting to learn how to fly cast and go fish with the the guys at night on the Manistee and the Asable. Uh so that was kind of kind of my start into fly fishing uh, that's super cool I'm yet to really fish the hex hatch I've been <laughs> trying to get into it for for years here in Maine but just haven't quite found it that that's that's really cool that you kind of grew up in an area where there's so much fishing history so how old were you when you moved to North Carolina then I was oh man how old are you in fifth grade yeah. um <laughs> so we moved to North Carolina my dad's job relocated um in fifth grade and kind of ended fishing really uh, other than the occasional trip with my grandfather on my dad's side but each summer I would still go up to Michigan and spend a couple weeks uh, fishing the Manistee mainly at that time and um, we would take about a week-long trip to the upper peninsula and rent a cabin on a lake and uh, we would mainly troll for walleye and pike but most evenings I would get out, there was a dock where we would stay and um, I would cast poppers for smallmouth off the dock. And uh, that's still the biggest smallmouth that I've landed still from up there. I think I was 13 or 14 when I caught that. It was a pretty <laughs> special fish. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's awesome. Heard great yep. things about the Upper Peninsula. Do a lot of the tributaries to those lakes have trout in them? Um, the particular lake that we used to stay at does have a tributary that flows into Lake Michigan on the UP side. And I've never, never trout fished it. Um, in fact, I've never trout fished in the UP. Um, I've gone up, uh, a couple times as I've gotten older, um, chasing grouse, um, but most of with how Michigan is managed on the trout streams, by the time I get up there in the fall, um, most of those trout streams are closed for the season. Okay. So you didn't do much fishing in North Carolina? Um, not at first. Once I got my driver's license, that was a different story. Um, I had a, a buddy that I'd got into fishing. We started taking the spinning rods and bait casters and um, we actually worked for my mom just out of high school uh, as well. And we would 
take like three hour lunch breaks and go fish farm ponds until work <laughs> called us and asked where we were. But I got him into fly fishing when we were probably 19 and we would drive up to the mountains and go camp at first a lot in the Smokies, uh, which was really my first adventure in fly fishing in North Carolina and Tennessee. Um, we would fish a lot of those little creeks for brook trout and then some of the the bigger waters just outside of the park for uh, browns and rainbows as well. Yeah, I've, I've heard kind of different things about uh, the fishing in the Smokies. Some people say it's great. I've heard other people say there are issues with acidity, like the, the soil doesn't have enough buffer to keep things alkaline. Were there brook trout in pretty much every creek you found up in the mountains there? Once a lot of the higher elevation stuff will have brook trout. Some of them kind of like the, the gems that nobody really talks about are the ones, the little creeks that haven't been touched by the state in the past. And those have what are referred to as southern strain brook trout in them. A lot of those creeks when, you know, deforestation and just general, um, you know, building of civilization, you know, a lot of those creeks were no longer supporting trout of any kind. And the state has done a good job of restocking wild populations of brook trout, although all of those came from hatcheries up north. So they're a, a different mm. subspecies of brook trout than what were originally there. So it's kind of interesting when you start talking about fishing the southeast, whether that's North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, even parts of North Georgia, you still have a couple of these creeks that are, you know, just the actual native fish that were originally there. Uh, however, a majority of them, when you're talking brook trout, have been stocked by the states at some point and are no longer true southern strain brook trout. Interesting. Okay. And I assume on those smaller streams, you're just kind of hiking around and fishing little dries. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great fishing with you know just general attractor patterns whether it's you know like a small chubby chernobyl adam's parachute here's your parachute uh there's a lot of really cool history um and some really unique flies that came from the southeast that never really got national acclaim so that was cool like growing up you know teenage and and early adult years kind of learning the history and like flies like the thunderhead and the yeller hammer you know, have really still cult followings in the Southeast of guys that, that will fish those flies. And, um, you know, they're variations on a theme as are most flies, but just kind of unique to the area. And it's cool to see that they're, they're still around and they still catch fish. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I love that kind of little localized, um, intrigue of, of fish. <laughs> it's, it, it seems like everywhere you go, and you go into a fly shop and somebody's got, you know, whether you're in like Virginia or like I've been in a fly shop in South Africa and somebody's like, oh, like this is the one that works here. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, and the history is really cool. Yeah, we would, um, we started doing a lot of fishing out on the coast for the false albacore run along the Outer Banks. And it was interesting to see that was kind of my first adventure into saltwater fishing and we would go with a, a group of guys that had been doing it for a while and they were all very peculiar about their 
their false albacore flies and um you know like uh surf candies and and the tutti frutti color and um you know lots of bigger stuff that imitated the silver side minnows that were prevalent there a few years later i started going out to montauk with a different group of guys the very eastern end of of new york there mm-hmm. and brought i had tons and tons of flies uh from the outer banks and when i when i brought them out there and first showed them to the guys they thought i was nuts i mean <laughs> the, the stuff that we had tied for the north carolina albacore was probably about five times larger than what those guys were throwing in new york it was completely completely different style of fishing for the exact same fish and so that was kind of cool to see that that goes back with trout right like i mean we don't really fish the same way out here um for trout as as you do in other places you know like i was saying north carolina is much more general attractor you know and then you get on the tailwaters in tennessee and it's probably closer to like what we see on the Henry Spork, where there'll be a, a specific hatch going off. If you want to dry fly fish, you have to match that hatch for sure, uh, which you don't really see on a lot of the creeks in, in North Carolina and Michigan for that part as well. I mean, there's a lot of times that we would just fish general dry flies, you know, parachute atoms in a, in a size 14 for the longest time. That was the only dry fly that I knew even existed. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that for sure. And, you know, different places. So did the, did the big flies work on Montauk? Uh, you know, I did have a year when I was out there where the, the normal bait that you're looking for are little bay anchovies and they're like half an inch to an inch. They're real, real tiny, very translucent. And they run across Montauk uh, by the millions, if not more. And one year that we were out there, they just didn't show up. Like <laughs> there's no bay anchovies anywhere. Um, but the fish were all on sand eels. And so we were fishing, um, all kinds of, di- I mean, big clousers. Um, there's a kind of a cool fly that we fished called the airhead, which is like this big slinky fiber silicone coated monstrosity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, if you saw a striper come up and boil on a sand eel and you were able to put that in the boil, a lot of times they would come back and eat that, that airhead. And so it was, it was cool sight fishing. Um, you didn't have the, the big schools of the false albacore chasing down bait, but you had a lot of really nice sized striped bass that were um, just up cruising by themselves, picking off sand eels as they were diving back down to the bottom. So it, it's, there's always something interesting going on out there. And, um, I have a, a good buddy of mine that, that kind of put that trip together most of the years. And he would, he would be very upset with me if I didn't mention that, uh, white squid, um, <laughs> any fly that looks like a white squid can be, uh, quite the fish catcher out there. Uh, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Sight fishing for anything is fun, especially big striped bass. Oh man, it's a, it's a special fishery and very, very cool fish. That's for sure. It's kind of a haul from North Carolina. Well, at the time we, when I first started doing that trip, we had actually moved to Florida. And so I would, we did that trip like every other year. And, uh, so it would be saving most of the year for, for the plane tickets and then just the, the food. And we would book a guide for a couple days when we were out there just to get out on the boat and off the jetty. And, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a big investment, but some, some fantastic memories and definitely saw 
some super cool fishing and uh, miss, I think back to back years, I missed my flight home because we couldn't get off the water because wow. the fishing was too good. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing that I stayed married through that time. <laughs> so what, I guess, what took you down to Florida and you eventually started working on an offshore boat, right? Yeah. So, oh goodness. I, I guess to start my wife, well now wife at the time, girlfriend, we met. Um, so when we started dating, she was automatically screwed, right? Like we had to deal with all these fishing trips and then <laughs> got progressively more expensive as we found different fish to go chase. And we had probably been dating for two or three years and she had family in Florida that she hadn't seen in a couple years. And this was after we started doing the false albacore on the outer bank. So I was kind of smitten with the whole saltwater thing. <laughs> and I used it as her family as an excuse for us to take a vacation down to Florida. <laughs> so we, we borrowed my parents' minivan and loaded up a bunch of camping stuff in it. And I had a buddy that had some kayaks at the time and we borrowed his kayaks and we had bungee cords and ratchet straps i mean it none of it could have been road legal but <laughs> proper we, dirt uh, bagging our, our way down to um uh, boca raton and stopped there's a great fly shop right outside there and uh they gave me some great advice on flies and walked the beach there a couple mornings and and caught some ladyfish sightfish ladyfish in the surf and um we were a little early for the snook on the atlantic side uh they tend to show up a little bit later than they do on the gulf side but yeah, we stayed there for a couple days and then loaded up the minivan again and drove down to long key in the florida keys which is just south of isla mirada and we stayed at the state campground there and I woke up every morning looking for bonefish and um, never saw any. But <laughs> I was like, trying. dang, that sounds and, like uh, a, a dream <laughs> if it was that easy. Right. I wish it was. There's a couple guys there that got a few. Um, they would uh, wade out about waist deep and then blind cast the grass flat. Um, However, at the time, I considered myself a little bit of a purist and decided that I wouldn't cast at one unless I saw it. Um, <laughs> if I could go back in time, I would have said to hell with that thought process and I would have just caught a bonefish. <laughs> that sounds but, like uh, the kind of thing I would do and not catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it definitely seemed, uh, you know, like I was being sporting at the time. But now I think I would have rather had the experience of of catching a bonefish because I have not been. <laughs> afforded that opportunity since uh, um but so this was during when we took this trip was kind of like the internet heyday and you had all the message boards and everything were very active and um so when the, we were planning wormholes yeah exactly you know it's like there's a lot of good information and a lot of really bad information <laughs> and um you know we took it all with a grain of salt and uh you know, the bad information that we didn't believe, we just decided that they were trying to not get us to go fish there and went anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, anyway, on, on this this trip, one of the guys that I had asked about fishing in Florida, uh, he was a guide in Key West, and 
we had exchanged numbers and we had been on long key for a couple days and he sent me um, a text message asking what our schedule looked like and said that he had a couple open days and I thanked him. I was like, man, thank you. You know, but we can't afford it. Probably aren't even going to have enough money to drive back to North Carolina. <laughs> and he just sent me a message back that said he, he didn't ask me to pay him, but to meet him at the dock <laughs> and uh, on this day. So we drove down and to Key West and got on a flats boat for the first time. And he took us tarpon fishing. And that is a long way of telling you what moved us to Florida. <laughs> that was that was all it took. Less than two years later, we packed everything we owned up into a U-Haul and drove to Florida. And um, when we first got there, we were in the central part of the state and met some really cool guys. Um, and we would get up at Oh, goodness, probably like three to four in the morning on our days off. And we would drive two hours to Mosquito Lagoon, Banana River and the Indian River, all on that Canaveral National Seashore. And I had a canoe um, that I'd bought when we were in North Carolina for muskie fishing. And we would paddle this canoe all over that intercoastal, just chasing redfish and black drum and sea trout and kind of hit it at the end of its heyday shortly after we moved out of central Florida to southwest Florida there was a massive fish kill that killed like 90 percent of the fish population in the banana river Um, manatees dolphins tons and tons of redfish Uh, it decimated it and uh, it's kind of cool with social media now like I have some guys that I used to talk with and they guide it now and it's oh, coming wow. back, but it's, it's not the big fish fishery that it used to be. So feel definitely privileged that I was able to see it and learn on it. Cause it was definitely a target rich environment um, <laughs> back when we used to go, but yeah, I haven't been, been in ages. So it's, it's been neat to see some of the fish that they've been getting out of there. It definitely is. Was the um, fish kill like an algae bloom? So we had, Essentially, yes. And, and um, it was caused by a lot of different things. Florida is, is from a sporting perspective, if, if you hunt or fish in Florida, um, you definitely get frustrated with how the state manages its public waterways. And there's not really, for all the houses, I mean, if you've seen a picture of a Florida coast, or any of the intercoastal majority of it is nothing but house after house after house with perfectly manicured and landscaped lawns. Mm -hmm. And when you get rain, like you do in Florida, um, a lot of that fertilizer, even when done correctly and abiding by state rules ends up in those waterways um, and definitely messes, you know, with the, uh, the balance of the pH levels. And you get algae blooms and red tides and a lot of stuff that just don't ne- doesn't necessarily agree, you know, with, with how a fish would like to live and breathe <laughs> in, its, in its home. So unfortunately, in the, I think, six, just over six years that we lived in Florida, um, we saw quite a number of, of fish kills. And we moved there in 2011. And so we were the year after the massive freeze in South Florida, where you had tarpon and snook and bonefish and permit you know from everglades all the way through the keys and 
Biscayne Bay, you know, that couldn't survive that that massive cold snap and water temps down there when they get into 30s, uh, those fish are, are not designed to, to handle that. But when we moved, we moved to Naples in 2012. And so now that's the Gulf side, right? Yeah. Yep. So just um, pretty much the, the last big stronghold of civilization on the southwest coast of Florida. Um, there's a couple smaller towns on the way down um, to the northern boundary of the Everglades. But we were based in Naples. And that was kind of how I got started really chasing tarpon and snook and reds in a completely different style than what we would see on the east coast on the intercoastal and started to work on you know like a headboat we would take 12 a max of 12 people out and did that for two or three years getting hours for my captain's licensing thinking that I wanted to guide tarpon snook and reds Mm -hmm. in the everglades and (laughs) that never happened but the (laughs) captain's license did and uh so it's a pretty wild place down there still it's it's a great fishery in fact as we're as we're talking my tying desk is completely obliterated the rabbit strips and saddles for tying tarpon flies we still do a week-long camping trip down there every year and it's definitely one of the highlights of of my year and it will probably be until uh, I can no longer physically pull a boat um, (laughs) and pull my weight on the trip so um, that's definitely a place that if you ever get a chance um, whether it's on the northern end out of Chukaluski or if you fly into Miami and go on the Flamingo side it's a it's a spectacular place that um, is unfortunately degrading uh, at a rate that that is is kind of saddening but the fishing is is still there um the wilderness is still there uh it's kind of goofy trying to get into position to cast at a at a nice snook or a redfish and then having that whole shot be interrupted by a raccoon deciding that it (laughs) wants to come and get an oyster (laughs) (laughs) so why why is it degrading just pollution various yeah so like we were saying with how frustrating florida can be with how they manage the waters the everglades originally disney is essentially built on the spring that would have been the the head spring for the everglades to give you an idea of how massive it really is so you're talking orlando all the way down to florida bay which it sits in between the Florida Keys and what most people would think of the Everglades. I mean, it's just one big drainage, one big massive waterway. Um, and that water would flow through the Kissimmee River and then down into Lake Okeechobee. And then Okeechobee would filter down into what we would now call, you know, via the, the national park, um, the Everglades. And then that would filter even more so down into Florida Bay. And it just created this very, very, you know, just healthy environment that's extremely food rich for birds of all kinds, um, for fish of all kinds, uh, reptiles, and creates great growing soil because it's so nutrient rich. And so you have all the sugar plantations, which now completely interrupt uh, the flow. And then you know, the civilization built up around Okeechobee and then 
in order to prevent massive floods during hurricanes that has all been you know earthen dammed or diked up and so the 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 original flow is is a very small percentage of what it should be historically you know which in itself changes the environment quite drastically is go ahead oh i was just gonna say is that is that why you decided that it was maybe guiding that was not the the next step for you and you ended up going to alaska no no so the what the deciding factor to start Alaska was, um, like I said, the, the original plan with the captain's license was to guide down there. My boss at the time, my main job was running or working, depending on who you talk to, or the day, a bait and tackle shop right on the Gordon River in Naples. And we supplied quite a few captains with bait, take clients out for the day. The boat that I worked on was out of that marina as well. But my boss was just all about fly fishing. I mean, he sold shrimp and frozen bait to pay the bills, but <laughs> he had, goodness gracious, three or four flats boats. Wow. In the time that I worked for him, he was always upgrading and tinkering. <laughs> and um, I learned absolute tons about fishing that area with a fly from him and a couple of his buddies. I mean, they were instrumental in, in me um, becoming... I wouldn't say proficient, but, you know, good enough to where I felt like I could find fish most days. Couldn't always get them to eat, but I uh, generally had a good idea of where to look for them. Uh, so they were awesome with that. But he started, he got his captain's license and started guiding. And so part of it was seeing how slowly his clientele base was was being built up, how long it took for him to run enough trips to where you could consider it being a living instead of a side gig. And it wasn't due to his lack of ability or due to him not being a good guide because Paul was phenomenal. I mean, he had a, like a sixth sense as, as to where redfish would be. And that was, and probably still is his favorite fish to target down there. He was never a big tarpon guy, but loved to get the redfish up shallow where they would be willing to to chase down you know a variety of different bait fish flies which is normally what we would fish down there but it's not necessarily the the mecca of fly fishing in florida i mean that's really the keys you know i think a majority of people that are traveling to florida and are gonna spend that you know 600 to 700 dollars for a full day of fishing that's where they end up and then you also had a really great group of guides that had already been well established in that area, you know, so a lot of, a lot of the trips that you would hope to get would be overflow from those guys where they're just booked completely solid. You know, there's just one shop at the time that we were there, which we uh, maybe uh, plan to live about a block away from. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I was in there quite a bit too. And, and they had a, a group of guides that, that, that ran out of the shop. And, you know, so a lot of it was done through Tom and Pat there. And the idea when I wanted to guide there, the money, when I saw how hard it was to get started in the fly fishing was that I would buy a bay boat, you know, take families out, just tossing shrimp and catching fish along the mangroves and maybe running near shore and chasing triple tail on the crab traps when it was time to do that. You know, which sounds like a great gig and, and a lot of those guys are, are 
books as much as they want to be. And then you look at the cost of what a bay boat costs and then what insurance costs and then all the licensing and permitting to fish the different areas. And it quickly became very apparent that uh, it was with, <laughs> with <laughs> you know, outside of our uh, financial reach. <laughs> and uh, it was actually my wife that suggested Alaska. She was reminding me that uh, it was something that I'd talked about when I was younger. And, you know, at the time I'd been out of trout fishing for so long that, uh, you know, it was kind of just like a, a crapshoot of applying. We must have applied to 30 or 40 different lodges um, in Alaska and uh, heard back from three of them that wow. would take both of us. And, you know, we interviewed with those three and then ended up getting an offer from just one. And wow. uh, that's what, what brought us up, started bringing us up to Alaska for the summers. Man, because I had thought that a lot of people started their guiding careers in Alaska. But if it's that hard just to get into a lodge, or was it because you wanted to guide your first summer? That was definitely part of it. So wanting to guide my first summer and then coming up as a pair. So, <laughs> you know, when you're talking remote Alaska, you know, your, your pool of potential employees automatically shrinks when you find out that you're not going to have internet. Um, <laughs> you can't go home and see mom and dad after a tough day or a tough week. Um, you know, it's, it's not the, it's not necessarily the easiest place to work. So when you show up as a couple, especially as your first year, if one of you doesn't work out for whatever reason, then the lodge is potentially losing two employees. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you're just hiring a single person and they don't happen to work out, it's much easier to replace one person than it is two. Uh, so I definitely understand the thought process. And we've seen our, our share of uh, relationship uh, <laughs> issues that, that can arise in Alaska. It, it's a different thing when you live with your coworkers on a day-to-day, -day, you know, it's, there's yeah. no going home to get away from them, mm -hmm. um, which is in my opinion, a, a great thing when you have a good crew, I think that it, it builds a, a very tight knit group that, that will work their butt off to make sure that everybody else that's a part of that lodge succeeds. And if it didn't work that way, I don't think that you would see, as many lodges up there as you do nor would you see as many good guides up there as you see there's uh definitely some big personalities and i think <laughs> from a working standpoint that's what keeps outside of the fishing anyway that's what keeps the the work highly entertaining and as somebody new going up there there's i don't know that you could put you know a value on on the knowledge that you can pick up from some of those guys that have been up there for years and years and years. It's uh, it's a pretty, pretty spectacular place to work, I guess is what I'm trying to get <laughs> at. Um, not necessarily easy to get into, um, but you know, if anybody is, is thinking about doing it, um, it, it is well worth the effort put into trying to acquire a job up there. Okay. So that, that lodge was Royal Wolf Lodge, right? Yeah, so the, the lodge that, that we did the, the last few years that we were up there um, was Royal Wolf out in Bristol Bay. Okay. Um, what kind of fishing is there? How I guess how does that 
play into kind of the overall scene. Alaska is just like enormous, um, different geography in different places. What are most fly fisher fly fishermen and women going to be after going to Alaska? Oh man, it runs all over the place. So we'll kind of start from the bottom and, and work our way up, you know, Southeast Alaska, you know, it shares, you know, a little bit of water with Canada, you know, you still have your salmon runs, but a majority of people that are going to be looking to do trips out there will be small stream steelhead. And then as you start to work towards the mainland, you know, coming up towards like Juneau area, you're going to lose a majority of that steelhead run and majority of your fishing will be chasing, you know, the salmon that run up and there's some trout fishing. I wouldn't call it trophy from what I understand. I've not spent time over there. This is just kind of from research that we did when we decided to go to Alaska for the first time and looking at where we wanted to work. And as you get towards, you know, the mainland, even more Anchorage area, you have the Kenai Peninsula and you get, you know, the big king salmon will run up the Kenai and some of the tributaries and you have silvers and sockeye and chum salmon or dog salmon, you know, so you definitely have, you get all of your major, major salmon species. Plus you have very large trout on the Kenai, you know, and you have char dollies. And then there you'll start to get going north. You'll start to get more of an influx of grayling into the smaller streams and everything. And where we were out in Bristol Bay is going to sit, depending on where you're at, about 350 air miles southwest of Anchorage. I like the big that. Reason, air miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the way the crow flies. That whole area, for the most part, is roadless you'll have a, a few small dirt roads, you know, that go from the coast back to the villages in order to transport, you know, supplies. But other than that, the really the only way around once you're out in Bristol Bay is going to be via plane or boat, you know? So yeah, I, I don't know uh, how far most things are from the lodge, but I can tell you, you know, that once you're, you're, up and at flying altitude it'll take you about 15 minutes to get there (laughs) Um, but the the big draw to that area was the trout fishing that's why i wanted to to guide in bristol bay you know there's a a fantastic salmon fishery there and that salmon fishery is what creates such a phenomenal trout fishery if it wasn't for the salmon the trout would not be as big nor as plentiful uh, as they are in bristol bay and depending on what area of Bristol Bay, which is a quite a large area, you know, it starts basically, you know, at the Aleutian Islands and, and runs up. Oh, man, it's been a year and I'm already forgetting the name of towns. <laughs> um, but it runs up quite a ways, I would say, kind of terminating, at least in my experience, at the Nishigak River. Depending on who you talk to, I'm probably wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm definitely wrong on that, but with my experience from Bristol Bay, that's the furthest North that I ever went was to the Neshigat, which was quite a flight from where we were. Okay. So these are, we're talking massive rainbows and they're eating a lot of salmon eggs, I assume. Yeah. So you have these salmon runs that really, the Kings will start first 
and they're for lack of a better way to put it for the most part they're main river or low river spawners we would see a, a few kings in the smaller tributaries that we would fish but for the most part they're spawning in heavier flows um, larger gravel and they kind of kick everything off and they don't really move at least where we would fish in the rivers that we would fish they don't really get the trout going shortly after the kings you'll get the sockeye which are for all intents and purposes of where i'm familiar with in bristol bay that's the the lifeblood of the trout fishery uh the sock sockeye run dictates where the trout are going to be how much they'll grow and that's generally what we would follow so when we would fish lower river early in the season and then once the sockeye show up and force those trout are going to inhabit completely different lies mainly due in the lower river to the, just the sheer number of sockeye that show up and once you start to get these big pushes a lot of these trout will migrate following these sockeye knowing that it's going to be a food source whether it's because mm-hmm. an eagle picks one up and puts bits of sockeye in the system that the trout will feed on or a bear um you know any any number of things fishermen cleaning <laughs> their sockeye catch <laughs> on, on the the quijack there's the uh the fillet table run uh which <laughs> if you're having a really tough day <laughs> you can you can maybe maybe run a, a bead rig or a flesh fly uh on a drift along the finger. um and there's tons of other places you know where i'm sure that occurs but yeah the the sockeye are definitely the the main life life force that that provides that trout fishing and uh, once they show up um, you're not instantly bead fishing which is like you're saying most people that's how they think of you know alaska and it's definitely a big part of it but we do or did when i was up there lots and lots of streamer fishing you know that was a majority of of our June and the first part of the July. And then again, late season, uh, you know, maybe mid September all the way until we would end our season in October would be big streamers. And then there's dry fly opportunities as well for trout and grayling, which is, was a shock to me. That was the (laughs) last thing I thought that I would be getting to do when I was in Alaska. Um, when, I guess if, if you're going to take a trip up to a lodge and stay at a lodge, um, what are kind of the best weeks? I guess you want to be there when the sockeye show up, right? Well, depending on what kind of fishing you want to do, a guy that, that likes to, to swing flies with a, a single hand rod or a two hand rod, um, you know, June is, is a fantastic month um, that I think, in my opinion, gets overlooked quite a bit. It was definitely out of both lodges that we worked at, it was our slowest month out of the season at both lodges uh, with fantastic fishing opportunities, especially. So in Bristol Bay, when we were there, and I'm sure it still is this way, uh, trout season opens on June 8th. So that's when a lot of the lodges will start hosting their first, first guests and absolutely spectacular, spectacular streamer fishing. Um, most of these fish have not seen a fly since the previous October. They're post spawn. So they're quite hungry. And, um, 
some of the flies that you can get them to eat is is a little silly um <laughs> like if you can go back in time and find your first woolly bugger um you could catch fish on that thing uh until it was completely just a bear hook for the most part i mean they are ravenous wow. um so that is my favorite time of the year out of all of it would be early june and then late june you'll start to get some hatches some warmer water you'll have fish looking up what hatches are those what bugs you know um we would fish the uh the size 14 adams hatch quite a bit <laughs> um and then the black cricket hatch was was always a crowd favorite as well um but in all seriousness you have quite a few different mayflies um you know i wish i was a, a better entomologist to tell you but the the mayflies aren't really what get the the trout it's the the caddis flies and the stone flies and the crane flies are at least on the rivers that i fished are what would get the the fish up and i've seen an absolutely ridiculous little lime i'll, I'll call them a little lime green sally um, you know, just a little lime green stone fly about a size 18, um, just blanket hatch on the Alagnac. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, we would, would throw our best imitation of that, which was about a size 12 yellow stimulator, um, <laughs> <laughs> and just had a field day oh, on, awesome. uh, on trout and grayling. Um, and then the crane flies like right where, you know, the mouths of the rivers, where they start to come out of the, some of those lakes, um, can put off some really good crane flies um and then you're you know it's like any chubby chernobyl skated across the surface would do quite well in fact i would argue um from what i learned from a couple of the guides at royal wolf that a skated fly for the most part is more productive on top mm. um, than a dead drift and there's a few rivers where that that's not the case and you would want a good dead drift but where i spent a lot of my time we would do eight pound maxima and uh, a double turl knot uh, which causes that fly to ride with the hook eye up and it will skate through anything yeah. and uh, it's really cool to see 23 24 inch rainbow or a 20 inch grayling just charging down a size 12 dry fly and then it's a little ridiculous yeah that doesn't <laughs> sound so bad <laughs> um but yeah, so, and then you roll from the end of June and then generally around the 4th of July, you're starting to see good numbers of sockeye show up. They're not spawning yet, so it's still uh, good streamer fishing. It can be a little, I wouldn't say hard, but tougher to locate big groups of trout because of the number of sockeye. It definitely displaces the trout into some goofy water. But that's like the time we'd have some good fishing on what people would call mousing mm -hmm. um you know I, I never used um you know like a pattern that looked truly like a mouse but like gurglers um a couple of our guides i may get kicked for saying this or a nasty <laughs> phone call but they love bass poppers oh yeah um, you, you there's no floating required um the hard foam head poppers and then just skate those and and the fish to them it's just a moving meal up top and um you know definitely some some cool i never got into the bass popper thing but i've seen some cool videos of of trout blowing those things up um 
and uh probably towards the end of july you'll start to see your first couple sockeye reds start to you know do their thing and you know you can definitely uh still get them on streamers um but most of those trout will be staged in in pools or runs below the sockeye spawning areas and that's kind of the kickoff of bead season Um, and i think that there's some misconceptions uh, about that whole style of fishing um i i think the best way that i can put it um is that when it first gets going it can be it it can be a little ridiculous it's uh you know if it's round and orange or red or yellow or green or blue um you know you can have some pretty good days of fishing because it's the first influx of eggs they haven't really got stung by a bead rig yet but as it progresses um depending on where you're at it can be arguably one of the most technical quote-unquote hatches that i've ever fished um we will drop way down um, in tippet size. And almost all of this is, is sight fishing. I feel like I should mention that. Yeah. Um, a lot of the rivers that, that we would fish is not blind fishing a bobber rig. You know, a lot of the creeks, I fish moraine a lot, which is pretty well known. It's a, it's a busy place. And a lot of times, especially on low water, I'm not using an indicator or bobber of any sort. A lot of times, not even split shot. I mean, these fish are sitting in water with their dorsals and their tails out of the water, you know, so you're, you're really visually keyed in on what these fish are doing and looking for that reaction. Moving out here to West Yellowstone and spending my first summer out here, I heard a lot of what was called sight nymphing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's essentially what we're doing. And they will get super keyed in on, on a certain phase of wow. the salmon eggs. So I never heard anything get, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it, well, I have probably a 10 time, a 10 times larger collection of nail polish than my wife does. <laughs> um, so, color. yeah, the, uh, and each guide that you meet up there will have their own concoction of paints and clear coats to get what they feel is the exact imitation uh, that the fish are keying in on. The one that I had the greatest success with, or or my guest had the greatest success with uh, my last year up there um, involved seven different colors of nail polish (laughs) um, and two coats of Sally Hansen's hard as nails, which is a clear coat. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it was spot on. And <laughs> unfortunately for the fish, a lot of them thought the same thing. Um, but, you know, you sit there at night with, you know, no internet, no TV, you know, and, and so just sitting in a room, huffing nail polish fumes and getting that exact color is, is a pretty good way to pass the time. <laughs> um, Got to get the right shades that's it man and i never in uh, my wildest dreams thought that i would get nerdy about how much glitter <laughs> is in a, a bottle of, of nail polish but um yeah i don't know maybe delete that part <laughs> <laughs> yeah we can do that don't worry no but yeah so that that progresses and and as that whole sockeye uh quote unquote hatch progresses um it gets more and more technical 
you know, the fish have been, been stung a few times and, uh, you know, they've seen their fair share of eggs that aren't actually real and it's tough and it requires very, very good drifts. It requires a lot of stealth when they're in that shallow water, very easy waiting. You can't just go stomping into a run when you see fish working into position is, is paramount. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche, I guess, but making that first cast count, especially on big fish was, was key. This shows how little I knew. I had no idea there was much <laughs> of a sight fishing element. Are you using, I guess, how are you getting to these places? Are you going by plane? Um, are you doing any drifting in a boat? Yeah. So that's a great question. And it, and it depends on the lodge and where the lodge is located. So we're, and by we're, I mean, Royal Wolf and, and the whole crew there is located on the headwaters of the Alagnac. And it sits in a little bowl. And we had two lakes uh, that housed our planes. And uh, the non-bionic, which was kind of hard to pronounce for most people and even harder to spell. So we just called it the home river. Um, <laughs> it, it fished very, very well early in the season. But once the sockeye showed up, a lot of those trout would migrate uh, with the sockeye up into the lake and then go into the next uh, river. And so once that started, then we were flying out pretty much every day. And a lot of lodges up there will keep drift boats stashed on the river, or not drift boats, excuse me, jet boats. Um, wow, just one summer and I'm already losing <laughs> my, my, uh, my tact here. But uh, they'd keep jet boats on, on various rivers. And so you'd fly and land in a lake or a river, um, hop on a jet boat, and then you're using that as your mode of transportation. Um, a majority of, of what I did over my summers in Alaska was I would hike in a raft we would use these little 10 foot nrs rafts um mm -hmm. and would hike that if it wasn't busy it was like a half a mile which i really appreciated um but if it was busy uh there's another drop-in point that was a mile upriver from where we would land um and so i would carry my backpack which had all of our gear for the day and lunches which weighed about 45 pounds and then <laughs> i would have uh, this 80 to 90 pound raft, um, strapped on top of that backpack and carrying that a mile through the tundra. You were probably which, cut. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Way better shape than I am <laughs> after a summer in Montana. That's for sure. Um, you know, the, the first couple of trips were always a nightmare and it reminded me how much I needed to start working out in the off season, uh, which never happened. <laughs> But uh, yeah, by, uh, by the end of June, I felt like I was in pretty good shape. It, it feels pretty good as a guide when you're carrying that much weight and you get up the hill and you look back and your guys are only about halfway, you know, and, and yeah. they're just carrying some oars and a fly rod. <laughs> That's a um, cardio bonus for the job. Oh, man. Yep. But that, that was my favorite thing. I, I enjoyed uh, doing the smaller water with the raft you know, the, the rafts were so small, you're not fishing out of them. Mm -hmm. You're using them as a vessel to get from, from gravel bar to gravel bar. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it served a, a good purpose as to locate fish as well. It's, uh, I think a misconception that 
going to Alaska, you're going to be the only person fishing a certain body of water. Um, it was definitely eye-opening for me the first year to see just how many people um, are at these lodges and are flying out and going fishing to these places. You know, it's uh, you definitely do, do not... your research. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's um, not necessarily that it's just because there's only fish in certain places it's that the <laughs> i got a whiny dog over here um <laughs> must be a, a squirrel outside <laughs> probably um, or a bison you know it's that you know the the cost for somebody to go to one of these lodges that flies out is so high they expect to I'm trying to think how to word this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the expectation for good fishing is, is where it needs to be, but it's very high, mm -hmm. um, you know, for a trip of that magnitude. And a lot of these lodges have head guides that have been doing this for a long time and they know the timing of these runs and when this area should be fishing and, you know, when this one's going to be falling off, um, you know, so the, the knowledge base of where to put people on good fishing um, is there. And then, you know, it's going to be, you know, whoever you're going out with for the day, it's going to be their job to figure out how to catch them. But, you know, for the most part, that head guide is going to put the suggestion on, on where that trip for the day should go. Um, you know, and they do, I think a, a phenomenal job of, of having that timing down. Um, and, the neat thing about it is if as a guide, if you're willing to look and pay attention um, and be patient, I can get you out of the traffic um, mm -hmm. and we will find fish that have not been fished over and we'll be happy and we'll be calm. Um, you know, so I guess what I'm getting at there is that, you know, the potential um, for finding unpressured fish and pressured fisheries um, is there and it's it's just rewarding as go ahead you just got to have a little faith yeah yeah and that's where the raft was really cool right is that um, even though it's a tiny raft and we can't fish out of it I can stand and get a much better vantage point um, and find some of these fish that are in out of the way places out of the main travel zone where a lot of the rafts are going and we can end up having a pretty good day even when the river upon first look seems very crowded we can can slow way way down and let everybody get to you know all the named runs and pools and we will pick off all the really happy fish in between <laughs> <laughs> so i I, uh, I cut you off where were we in the kind of month by month run yeah so um i think we ended with uh how technical the bead fishing actually is so at its most technical point is I would say when the full force of salmon spawn is going on and then you'll start to get, you know, these salmon, once they spawn, they die and you'll start to get a little bit different fishery showing up day by day um, that will progressively get better. And that will be no longer with uh, beads that are painted to imitate a fresh salmon egg, um, but we'll go to, um, ones that look more like an egg that didn't get fertilized and 
when that first starts happening is probably my favorite part of the whole spawn situation. Um, because when you're looking at two foot of rainbow trout in an area that is impossible to get a good drift in or a good cast in, and it's willing to move five, six feet out of its way to pick up a dead egg, you kind of feel like a superhero when you, <laughs> when you can call that fish out, which unfortunately early is not every fish, but you know, there can be a couple days where it seems like it. And, uh, you know, starting to fish, uh, if you've ever looked at a fly catalog, you've seen these giant monstrosities, which is like pink and orange and white rabbit with like a bunch of beads lashed to the trailing hook, like the happy meal. They have all kinds <laughs> of fun names. Um, but you can start to fish a lot of those flesh flies too. You know, whether it's underneath an indicator or dead drift of some sort, um, you know, swinging them again with the, the spay rods uh, can be very productive. And uh, you lose a little bit of your sight fish aspect um, starting to get into, you know, the, the very tail end of the sockeye spawn. What month are we in but, now? So it depends on the river. You know, the generally speaking, the fish that won't run way, way up to the very top end of these tributary streams to spawn will be the first to die. So let's say like you're fishing up as high as you're willing to hike or as high as you can get on that particular river, you know, those fish will stop the spawn and, and die first. And then you, your fishery would change. But on that same river, if you went down lower to where it runs into the main branch, um, you could still be fishing to, to fresh spawning, you know, sockeye and, and picking off, you know, trout behind them with a fresh bead. And throughout that whole region, the timing is a little different from river to river and creek to creek. Um, so, you know, our, our sockeye spawn season, um, you know, can run from as early as mid-July all the way almost to October, uh, depending on the year. Um, kind but, of like hatches, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that was kind of a cool thing to see here was that you can fish green drakes, you know, and, and shoot, you know, it seems like for like a month and a half or <laughs> something like that, you know, just bouncing around. And then if you, you add in, um, whatever those goofy ones over in the Northeast corner of the park are, then you're extending it <laughs> for like a majority of the summer. Yeah. Um, and it, the sockeye are the same way throughout majority of alaska and um you know like i was saying they'll, they'll start up around showing up around fourth of july uh in bristol bay but you know on the kenai peninsula it's much earlier it's it's in june at some point um so uh you know if, if you were you know either a, a person that had a, a bunch of time and money you could essentially chase <laughs> behind um spawning sockeye and fishing that uh for quite a while in alaska but for bristol bay it's pretty much over um for the most part you know at least as a guide you're you're glad to start fishing the streamers again uh by mid-september okay um, you know and on some of the bigger rivers that don't really get the sockeye you're already fishing them you know you're, you've already started fishing uh those bigger streamers um you know even if you're 
maybe targeting fish behind a, a different type of salmon, you know, chum salmon on some of those rivers, on the bigger rivers, um, are a major food source for those trout, um, you know, and, and that will, that will last, you know, until August, um, for those, uh, the, the fish behind Kings, I don't have a lot of experience on, um, but I know in some of those fisheries, uh, that's, a, that's a major food source, especially as you get further north on that, that coast um, of Alaska, you know, going up from Bristol Bay. You know, the good news um, is just one on the top of my head where, where I know that they target rainbows behind, you know, spawning kings uh, mm -hmm. when it's after that. So, um, but yeah, end of middle of September, end of September, um, you're definitely into streamer fishing. And uh, that's going to be what carries you out to the end of the season. And that's when your fish numbers are maybe not as high as they were in June. Um, when you're fishing streamers in June, you'll, you'll have, you know, maybe fewer fish per day. Um, but targeting um, areas where you think that, you know, those truly large fish. Um, and Alaska is a little skewed in that, you know, if you tell somebody you caught a big fish or your, your guest caught a big fish, it better be. 30 inches or above or else oh. it's just <laughs> that's big yeah yeah it's uh definitely a different animal it's hard to even seeing as many fish as we see as guides in alaska it's hard to comprehend when you see a fish that large um the last year when i was up there i had two guests that i absolutely loved they were repeats just great people to spend a day with and it didn't matter how the day went as far as the fishing goes it was always fun and we're looking at two fish in a run behind a sockeye bed and one of them is substantially larger than the other one the smaller of the two fish was much darker and we put it in a drift and the big fish sunk down into the hole and uh the smaller of the two fish stayed there and was still actively feeding and on the second cast we hooked that smaller fish and we landed it and it was absolutely beautiful rainbow trout one of the darkest fish that i've ever seen it had to be extremely old if i had to guess um but it taped at 28 inches that's pretty good so how <laughs> how big was the one that was substantially <laughs> larger you know and it, it's just like holy crap like we're here we are like extremely excited about this massive massive fish a fish of a lifetime mm -hmm. and we're sitting here wondering how big that other trout was <laughs> <laughs> okay so why why did you end up moving down to montana leaving these monster trout <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness so at the end of each season you spent you know the past four and a half months in the middle of nowhere with really no way to spend money. You've had no cost of living, you know, other than if you wanted a case of beer, or, you know, maybe a, a bottle of liquor to pass around the campfire at the end of the week. Um, you know, so you're, you're pretty flush with cash. Mm -hmm. And um, Brandy and I have always enjoyed going to new places and we figured, you know, what, what better time to do it other than the end of a summer in Alaska when you've been working six, sometimes seven days a week for weeks on end. 
um, you know, just to take a week or so um, to travel and explore. So we would go someplace new at the end of each season. You know, we did uh, Alaska with my parents. We had them fly out one year and we just rented a car and drove to Denali and took a, a flight around Denali. We've done the, a lot of the Pacific Northwest and fell in love with a lot of that area. And, um, at the end of the last year that we were up there, which was 2019, we were debating on either doing British Columbia or Montana. And we were having trouble finding lodging in British Columbia, seeing as like, if I'm going to do British Columbia, I'm going to go fish steelhead. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> and it just so happens that the end of the Alaska fishing season coincides with great time to be in British Columbia chasing steelhead. Um, so we couldn't find any reasonable lodging. I mean, we could have ended up at a lodge uh, like we worked at in Alaska, but we didn't feel like spending our whole summer's worth of wages on one week. Yeah, don't um, blame you. <laughs> so Montana is a place that I had been to when I was younger. I'd been to Big Sky in my early teen years to go skiing and snowboarding and had one of the last years that you could go snowmobiling in the park unguided. We went and did that, which was a great memory, but I'd never fished. And seeing how that dictates a lot of things in my life, I figured <laughs> that I should probably remedy that. Um <laughs> So, and we didn't really have a plan. We, um, we flew out of Anchorage and landed in Bozeman and we rented a, a, a Jeep knowing that Montana can sometimes get early snow. We figured that four wheel drive would probably be better than a Nissan Versa. Um, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, especially with, with, uh, with our driving record. So, um, you know, we wanted four wheel drive and, um, yeah, we just started driving and ended up in West Yellowstone and um, kind of thought that it would just be a day or two on what would be this grand adventure across the state of Montana, which kind of like Alaska is a much larger state than you would give it credit for. <laughs> um, so we fished between the lakes um, and Brandy caught her first Montana rainbow trout within a couple minutes. Look at that. And um I think that might've been our only fish of the day though. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it was a good one. But yeah. So, I mean, so we landed in Montana in October and drive down to West Yellowstone. And one of our guests from the summer had a house in Paradise Valley and invited us to stay there for a couple nights. And so after two days in West Yellowstone, we drove to Paradise Valley, which took us through the park. And we were completely in awe with the park. And um, when our time in Paradise Valley was up, we just drove back to West Yellowstone. And um, not knowing the fishery, figured, like, hey, like, let's book a guide trip. And um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we walked into, into Blue Ribbon Flies. Bucky was at the counter and told him that we wanted a guide trip for the next day. And he said that he had one guide available and uh we told them that we would take it and uh we went on that guide trip and um our plans got completely derailed by the wind ah. but had some absolutely phenomenal fishing um before the wind picked up and then some pretty good fishing after uh 
after that and we got back to the shop and we were talking with with Bucky and Cam and they're asking what brought us to West Yellowstone and I told him the story that I just told you and they said well if you ever think that you're done in Alaska give us a ring and you'll have a job here yeah and uh we talked about it and for as awesome as a place that Alaska is to live and work um Brandy and I saw very little of each other through the summer <laughs> yeah um you know just kind of been passing here and there and I got to take people fishing phenomenal places almost every single day um of the summer but I didn't get to do hardly any fishing you know and it's not that the the opportunity isn't there necessarily um, and if I was a younger man, when I started this, instead of my thirties, I probably would have had the energy, um, you know, to go and fish until midnight and then get up at, you know, 6am the next morning and do it all over again. But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one thing that I had missed a lot was getting to fish stuff in peak season, you know, and with talking with, with the guys at the shop, you know, it sounded like. I would have ample opportunity to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And they were not wrong. <laughs> I really fished more this past summer working here than I have in the past three or four years combined. And, and part of that was that when we weren't in Alaska, we we're, um, you know, taking classes at the community college, um, which took up a lot of time. So I didn't get a ton of time fishing um in the off season when we were back in north carolina and not in alaska um so but that was that was the big selling point um or the two big selling points was it's that, always that fishing huh <laughs> it, it really is um you know some sometimes brandy loves it and sometimes she doesn't um and that was uh, on that note that was probably my favorite part of this whole summer was how much her and i got to fish together if you took a video or, you know, just a snapshot in time of her fishing when we got out here in May and then another one of her in September, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it was the same person. You know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, big, big progression. Yeah. Amazing. What time on the water and a willingness to learn and an interest in it will do, you know, that's and, awesome take advantage of it while we can because at some point that time won't be there yeah i can i can uh from a kid perspective i can attest <laughs> to that uh <laughs> well i think we've covered a whole lot and uh we'll yeah, i didn't mean to talk your ear off there i kind of rambled a little bit there <laughs> no no not at all not at all there's just man you've got you've got a ton of really interesting stuff to say we'll just have to do this again yeah, definitely. And talk and get into some more topics. Yeah. All right, Josh. Thanks a ton for coming on. Lots. I learned lots. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners will have learned lots too. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Trout Talk again. Bye. <laughs>